Welcome to the Italian Renaissance Podcast, where we discuss the culture and art of 15th and 16th century Italy. I'm your host, Lawrence Gianangeli. Andiamo avanti. Welcome back, Renaissance people. How'd you like that new intro? I'm working on it. I'm so excited to be talking to you guys today, officially launching into our second season of the Italian Renaissance Podcast. We're changing things up, we're stirring the pot around here, we're stepping away from central Italy, away from Florence and Rome and Michelangelo and Leonardo, and we're turning our eyes to the northeast of Italy, to the Republic of Venice. We've already touched some aspects of Venice, their art, their history, though not in any thorough way. If you remember my interview with G. Cooper on Venetian architecture in England, Neopalladianism, right? Or the, the Halloween special, which covered some of the lore around the plague island of Povelia. Keep those things in mind as we move forward, as we look to define Venice in the clearest terms possible, and how we understand its geographical importance, and how extremely different the Renaissance manifested itself there. So what we are going to do today is really get into the nitty-gritty about Venice, its history, the structure, so that we can contextualize the art and cultural productions that arise from it. I have been very lucky in my life to visit the city many times, either as a student, as a traveler, I've even been for work. I have seen the city at all times of the year, and even been for the famous Carnivale, which was let's say, an interesting experience, one that I'm fine only doing once and not doing again. Although I have seen almost all of the major collections in the city, the palaces, the churches, and many, many of its dead-end streets wandering aimlessly through its labyrinth, I have never studied the city formally, never with such an acute and steady focus. I am excited to present to you all the labor of this intensive deep dive into the history of Venetian Renaissance. So, let's get started. We will be referring to Venice in two ways. The first being the city itself, the city of Venice, Venice proper. And the second being the Republic of Venice, which, by the 1400s, was a powerful mercantile force in the Mediterranean, which also included the major cities like Padua, Verona, and Vicenza in the beginning of the 1400s. When I refer to Venice as a power, I am talking about the entire scope of Venetian territory of the Republic that goes beyond the city itself, but is ultimately governed from Venice proper, from the lagoon. Let's talk about that. What and how is a city on a lagoon. As many of you know, there are no streets in Venice, no cars, no roads. The entire city is a system of canals and waterways, sidewalks, and bridges. Everything is done by boat. It is truly unique and alarmingly beautiful. Through the Middle Ages and the Renaissance, this was a critical strategic position. The lagoon itself, on which the city was built, is dangerous to navigate, that is, if you are not Venetian. That means the city positioned itself in an area of natural defense. 
right? It doesn't have any major city walls. It has a lagoon. You would have to be crazy to command your war galleys against them in the lagoon because the chances are you won't make it to the city itself. What we have is a city on the sea on major trade routes that is easy to defend, unlimited potential for wealth and prosperity. But wait, how is there a city built on a lagoon? And I'm sure you've heard the kind of popular Venice is sinking, right? It is in a certain way. A lot of what that is referring to is how an entire city can be placed on top of a wet, muddy environment. Not that the whole city itself is gradually going under the water. I'm no chemist, nor am I an engineer, but I will say this in the best way that I understand it. The firmament is made by taking these massive planks of woods, essentially trees, tree trunks, and you push them into the mud, and you add a bunch of binding filler, and then you level it with, like, stone pavement, right? Further, the water is dammed, right? They dam up the water so that they can put in these reinforced walls that end up being built as canals. And it allows the top weight to distribute downwards, in a way, kind of like an arch, right? We talked about how arches distribute weight with the dome construction, which is creating a sort of plateau between the trunks, the weight distribution walls for the canals, and then the, the leveling of the stone. It's a plateau for a building's construction. And because of the defensibility of the position of Venice in the lagoon, and because many of these buildings have large canal-facing facades, they can have more windows, which means less weight on the walls, right? Which means more stability and more open air in the buildings. Does that make sense? There's a ton of YouTube videos on this. In fact, someone kindly posted one on uh, the, the podcast Facebook. If you want to go try to visualize the process of building these major palaces and churches on the mud. It's really incredible. I tried to make that sound like it made sense. Truth be told, I'm aware of these facts and I still don't quite get it. Part of the marvel of the city itself, right? Those massive wood foundations somehow petrify in the mud, but from time to time, they like sink deeper from the settling architecture, right? And it causes this uneven pavement or foundation. The problems this causes is not necessarily the scope of the episode, but I just want you to be aware that the city of Venice is a series of man-made islands separated by canals, joined by bridges, and situated in a lagoon, okay? In the Renaissance, people navigated this city by boat, by foot, by horses, many horses that were ample in the city. So the geographic location of the city is important and understanding the style and political development there because it's going to be very different from what we're used to. The Veneto was an ancient Roman province. When the Roman Empire was Christianized and divided in the Middle Ages, this region sat at the very border of that divide. That is the Eastern Empire, the Byzantine Empire, right? Same thing more or less, and the Western Empire, which fell 
becoming the various Italian city-states, many of which recognized the power of the Pope. The Eastern Empire, the Orthodox Christian power, did not recognize the Pope and thus developed their own religious culture and art. The position of Venice in all this is very complicated, but they essentially were under Byzantine visual influence, but they recognized the Pope. Okay, let me say that a little bit clearer. Rome splits in two. Byzantine Empire, Western Empire. Western Empire is gone. Byzantine Empire stays there. We talked about that a lot in regards to Florence, right? The Ottoman invasion of Constantinople, the coming of these Greek scholars to Florence, how that helped kickstart the Renaissance, right? They do pass through Venice too. It happens in 1453, right? That's when that officially falls. But for the entire length of the Middle Ages, right? For 100, 500, whenever, whenever the lagoon was settled, uh, until the Renaissance period. It is kind of half Latin West, half Byzantine East. Okay. And that's what contributes to that super unique Venetian style that we're going to get into here. What this means is that the physical style of the city is something completely diverse from what we are seeing on the mainland mainland Italy, right? When I refer to Italy, I'm referring to the Italian peninsula and the city-states that embody it, not the country of Italy, which did not exist. And that although Venice is often grouped in with them as one of the many Italian powers during the Renaissance, more and more they seem to be something altogether separate, at least through most of the 15th century. They start to pick up on these kind of more classical renaissance modes after and while yes they possessed cities in the mainland much of the venetian property was along the adriatic sea it was a coastal mercantile port republic in places like modern day croatia and greece all were part of venice in part right the islands yet their roman origins helped solidify their sense of identity We've seen this before, haven't we? All while Byzantine style held a sort of prominence in the city. In order to understand how the Renaissance occurred in Venice, you have to be able to grasp how they were a combination of Byzantine style with their contemporary needs and how that infiltrates and influences art. It manifests most evidently in the principal church of the city, San Marco which serves as one of the most important symbols of Venice, and we will discuss that thoroughly in a later episode. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Renaissance people, if you are enjoying the Italian Renaissance podcast, I have good news. We're now active on Patreon. You can show your love for the show by becoming a patron and get access to additional resources, information, and artworks. Better yet, those who join the Renaissance Master or Renaissance Patron tier will get access to at least one additional podcast episode each month. My goal is to ensure that the main podcast remains a free, accessible source for everyone. Become a patron today through the link in the show notes to support the continued production of new episodes and help build and maintain this community. The Italian Renaissance Shop is now also active on Etsy, linked in the show notes. Sport our logo or choose from a growing selection of Italian art-inspired designs. 
Discounts are offered to select Patreon tiers as well. Your support has my immortal gratitude. Now, enjoy the show. Since its separation from Byzantine power, Venice was a republic, one that was quite different than the counterparts on the mainland. Many components of modern government look similar. Checks and balances, multiple layers of republican power, with a leader who serves as more of a figurehead. The doge. A doge is a Venetian version of a duke, but the power structure is slightly different and changed over time. Right, The first doge of Venice took the office as early as 697 AD. That's our first doge, and the last by 1797. That's a very long history of which we concern ourselves with a mere sliver, right? roughly corresponding to the 15th and 16th centuries. I'm not going to detail the vast scale of political offices in Venice. What is important is that in Venice, the title of doge was not hereditary, like a duke might be an ancestral hereditary office, that you, that, like a monarch. Like the Pope, actually, one is elected doge, typically after having already served time in another Venetian office. And it is usually the post that you hold until death, right? Doge is for life. It is the Great Council of Venice, the legislative body that holds that election. And that means to elect someone as head of state, the Venetians must already deem them trustworthy and honorable. As such, the doge is not a monarch of absolute power. We're not talking Gonzagas and Sforzas and even Medici, who had de facto rule, even though they weren't official, they kind of were, right? But the doge was instead a face of the republic, not completely impotent by any means. They had power, but certainly not a being of supreme authority. Venice was conscious of a cultural identity it had developed that claimed a sense of universal equality, that everyone within Venice was equal, was the same. Of course, we know that equality is usually a myth, today as much as in the past, and there were classes of nobility and the wealthy just as there was a low class. But we should think that they wanted to present the doge as a Venetian like everybody else. Fairly elected and liable to the balance of power from other governing bodies. Do we understand that? Recently, I posted to our Instagram a portrait of Doge Francesco Foscari uh, by the artist Lorenzo Bastiani. Although the dogeship cannot be inherited, as I said, Foscari himself was of a noble bloodline that maintained power within the great council, right, that legislative body, from which he served as a blood right and was subsequently elected doge. So, no, the dogeship is not hereditary itself, but Foscari's term in the great council was a result of his blood, right? So, when we say equality, when we say fair and everyone's the same, blah, 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 not really, okay? Yeah, sure. You know, wink, wink. 
So Foscri, he's also the doge who coincides with the major cultural shifts that lead to what we may refer to as the Venetian Renaissance. We should understand the Renaissance as occurring both differently and slightly later in Venice than it did in Florence. Typically, art history points to major differences in design and color between the Florentine and Venetian styles. We have discussed in detail the development of Florentine art. We understand it as moving towards naturalism, the use of rational space, the influence of Neoplatonism, classical revival, spiritual symbolism between religious and pagan representation, and particularly focused on precise design-based works. Venice is often contrasted with this Florentine use of design of rational, rigorous mathematical technique. Instead, it is argued that Venetian art is color-based, amplified by the move from like tempura paints to oils, which give smoother, brighter color. Okay, for your information, tempura is a form of mixing pigment with egg yolk to brighten the pigment, but oil-based paints are still going to have a sharper hue to it. Okay, and it's usually like tempura on wood panels really common versus oils on canvas. I think you will see as we explore painting and architecture uh, that I will push back against this notion that there is a clear distinction between Florence as design-based art and Venice as color-based art. It's reductive, okay? The scholar Tom Nichols defines this conflict of general style in his book Renaissance Art in Venice from Tradition to Individualism. I'm going to read a section of this for you as it gives a clearer detailing of this difference and why it may not be so distinct. Okay. In the introduction, Nichols says, It is sometimes argued that Venetian artistic culture remained closely tied to the city's medieval state and religious institutions. From this perspective, Venetian art provides a conservative contrast to that in other Italian cities such as Florence and Rome. In these other centers... Emphasis was laid on design, or disegno, a key concept which refers at once to the use of preparatory drawings, the definition of three-dimensional form and space, and the preconceived idea of the work in the artist's mind. It has been pointed out that this preoccupation with the intellectual or even quasi-scientific aspects of art had less purchase in Venice where the sensual taste for color, colore, and highly worked surfaces continued, drawing on the traditions of Veneto-Byzantine and Gothic art. Artists and architects offered a more intuitive visual response to the ever-changing play of light on the reflective surfaces of the Lagoon City. Yet, it is possible to exaggerate the role of colore as a defining aesthetic in Venice, as also the related idea that an all-pervasive Venetianness, Venezianità, determined artistic developments. Such a view does little to explain the more dynamic dimensions of art and architecture in this period and fails to account for the radical changes in their appearances. 
End quote right there. Indeed, an early example of this comes from one of the innovators of Venetian Renaissance style, Jacopo Bellini. He was the father of Gentile and Giovanni Bellini, and he lived and died in Venice in the Quattrocento. Oddly enough, Jacopo Bellini's drawings for the flagellation of Christ coincide with the publication of Alberti's treatise on painting. Remember that essential Renaissance treatise, which demonstrated the mathematical precision of perspective, how artists show recession of space and scale, which was also developed by Brunelleschi. Not to mention that Alberti and Bellini, Jacopo Bellini, had met in Ferrara and seems to have influenced his style. The flagellation from around 1440 shows an amazing recession of space in perfect Albertian linear perspective. An early Venetian example of line-based, design-based drawing, preparatory drawing for a painting. It is not only this example, as you will find rigorous attention given to line and design across the breadth of Quattrocento Venetian painting, from all of the Bellinis to Carpaccio to Mantegna. Okay, And yet, as we will see, Venetian painting is vastly different from the Renaissance works appearing in Florence. Why is that? We can surmise that the major cultural innovations happening in central Italy unavoidably arrived in Venice, a city that frequently adapted to change. Yet if we consider what the revival of classical antiquity is, Venice does not have the same proximity to the city of Rome. And thus, the concept of classical cultural revival manifests differently. Do not forget that the revival we are talking about is classical antiquity as they perceived it in the Renaissance, meaning that different cultural centers may have a different working understanding of antiquity, or select different visual references or find different inspiration from text, etc. In the case of Venice, we see an inclination towards a Byzantine style as opposed to a Latin Roman style, right? That does not mean that there are not Greco-Roman influences. Keep in mind that the Byzantine Empire still was, in essence, the Eastern Roman Empire. That means that the visual vocabulary that Venetian artists were drawing on was simply not the same as mainland Italy. As for architecture, Venice encounters similar challenges in its prevailing Gothic style. Here, it did not meet an outright rejection, kind of like we saw uh, in Florence trying to supplant Gothic style with a classical style, but rather in Venice, it developed into its very own style called Venetian Gothic. It lasted longer, and it held greater influence throughout the city. Should we consider the lasting Gothic style, the full presence of the Byzantine, and the classical revival, Venetian architecture takes on an impressive form of its own. The overall state of Venice in the Renaissance is dependent on their mercantile power, which will dramatically shift when the Ottomans rise to prominence, ultimately ending the Byzantine Empire, gaining mercantile control of the eastern Mediterranean under Mehmed the Conqueror, right? What that means is that Venice, this 
odd mixture of Byzantine Latin Christianity is the direct rival of an Islamic empire. In that light, predominantly with textile imports, Islamic art and design become a central part of the Venetian visual vocabulary as well. We always have to keep in mind how the location of Venice places it at the center of major political and cultural changes, all which become adaptations of Venetianness. That really is what we're talking about here at the end of the day. Venetianness, right, by Nichols. Venezianita, so it is called. This is a unique style in history, an interaction, really, between a fairly unusual cityscape, how culture develops in that landscape, how it sits on the edge of all of these different influences, and how they influence each other within that setting. The Byzantine, the Gothic, the Roman, the Greek, humanism, individualism, mercantile power, maritime culture, the rise of Ottoman Islamic influence. We are in a very complicated territory here. Are you guys ready to step into Laguni Venetian waters with me? This podcast is dedicating this entire second season to the history of the Renaissance and the Republic of Venice. We are going to be discussing the major changes and innovations in the city, artists like Bellini, Giorgione, and Titian. This season will also contain interviews with scholars, which is exciting, covering painting and the influence of Islam. We will discuss that amazing, weird, wacky architecture, starting with the amazing basilica, pardon me, Basilica of San Marco, and the elaborate and the exciting Venetian myth and folklore that accompany the Basilica and that build up Venetian identity. I am so pleased with how this show has grown and with each individual engagement I have had with all of you. It's the highlight. This show is now officially a year old. So happy birthday, Italian Renaissance Podcast, and I am so proud of what is becoming. Thanks to all of you, you're listening, you're sharing, you're engaging. If you want to see the images that accompany each episode, follow the Instagram, post it in the show notes. If you are enjoying the show, the most helpful thing you can do is leave a review. It helps get the show visibility so we can grow this community. Lastly, I want to thank everybody who has provided financial support to the show via the donation link in the show notes. This is an extremely labor-intensive process, so if you want to support the show directly, you have my extreme gratitude. It's time for me to hop into my gondola and row off to my next stack of books to read for the next episode. Thank you all for listening, and arrivederci.